Hey there, I'm Daphna Chazen, registered dietitian and weight loss coach, and you're listening to the Down to Earth PCOS Nutrition Podcast, a place for practical advice for women looking to balance their hormones, ditch dieting, and discover mindset shifts that will keep you motivated and empowered on your healthy eating journey. Are you ready to get started? And welcome back to the Down to Earth PCOS Nutrition Podcast. Today's topic is one that you're likely familiar with. We're talking about bloating, and I cannot even tell you how many times I hear from women with PCOS that they feel bloated. They feel puffy, they're not sure why, sometimes their belly is distended, and they're just uncomfortable either all throughout the day or after meals, or sometimes it's only at night. So today's guest is going to help us sort it all out. Her name is Tamara Freuman, and she's a New York-based dietitian specializing in the dietary management of digestive and metabolic diseases. Tamara's expertise is helping her patients identify the many possible causes of gas, bloating, diarrhea, and constipation, and become symptom-free. Because of this expertise, she has been called the Bloated Belly Whisperer, and that is also the title of her book, which I highly recommend you get your hands on if bloat is an issue for you. So she has a great book. It's called The Bloated Belly Whisperer, and the book will help you understand what is causing your bloat. There's a really great quiz in there that you can also find online to help you narrow down the options, and then the book also provides you with suggested treatment protocols to minimize your symptoms. Tamara holds a master's degree in clinical nutrition from New York University. In fact, that's where we met. We were in the same class at NYU, and Tamara has always been a brilliant student and dietitian right from the get-go. Tamara likes to say that in order to balance out the glamour of a life spent talking about poop with both her patients and her twin children, she lives in the suburbs, drives a minivan, and occasionally eats peanut butter right out of the jar. So without any further ado, let's get into my conversation with Tamara Freuman. Hey, Tamara, welcome to the show. Thanks, Daphna. How you doing, friend? I'm great. It's good to see you after all these years. I know. Well, we're here for a really important topic that I know my listeners are going to really appreciate. And I like to have top-notch experts on my podcast. So here you are. You come in. Uh, when it comes to bloat, you come to mind for sure. Can you tell my listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Tamara Freuman, and I'm a registered dietitian in New York City. Um, and I primarily work for uh, a gastroenterologist with patients who have all manner of digestive diseases, conditions, symptoms, complaints, um, helping them kind of figure out how to eat to manage their digestive issues. Okay, great. And today specifically, I wanted to talk about bloating. Um, you're also the author of the Bloated Belly Whisper book, which is an amazing resource for anyone suffering from bloat. It goes into such detail about types of bloat and root causes of bloat and treatment. So I wanted to touch not on everything because it's impossible. It's, you know, such a wide topic, but I do want to talk a little bit about what specifically is bloating? If you can start us off there, is there a definition? Is there a specific type of, you know, symptomology or, or anything that will characterize this condition? 
Sure. Yeah. So bloating is a symptom. It's not a condition. So we'll start there. And it's a subjective feeling. It is a feeling of discomfort, of sort of fullness. It's not quite pain. Bloating is just shy of pain, but it's a sort of feeling of excessive fullness. Um, And it is often used interchangeably, but incorrectly with distension. So distension is when your belly is abs- is actually protruding. So you might kind of wake up sort of in a flatter state. And then at some point in the day, your belly really protrudes and sticks out. Your waistline actually grows. You might have to unbutton your pants. And that's distension. And often people use the word bloating when they actually mean distension. And sometimes people who feel bloated also look distended and they kind of have both bloating and distension. But sometimes these things can kind of be independent. So some of my patients will feel very bloated and full, even though they don't look any different. And conversely, sometimes you can actually look very, very distended and look almost pregnant, but not feel uncomfortable or full. And so I think it's important when you're complaining to a healthcare provider about a GI issue to kind of take a moment and and really understand, am I feeling bloated? Am I distended or am I both bloated and distended? Because different things cause different things. And so if you want to get an answer, being more precise about what you're actually experiencing will get you off to the races. Okay, great. So it does seem like everyone uses the term bloated constantly. It's a very, very commonly used um, term and complaint that I hear about. Is it really that common? Like, are, what, what are kind of the stats about bloating, if there are any? <laughs> I, I <laughs> there don't aren't know. Any. It's, it's yeah, a, I don't because it's that. subjective, it's hard to really know, I guess. Yeah, so bloating is incredibly common in the digestive world, for sure. It's one of the most common digestive complaints. However, to your point that everyone complains about it, people are also using the term to refer to things that are not digestive in nature. Um, So for example, sometimes people who retain water, who like have a high salt diet or, you know, drink a lot of alcohol and then their rings are tight or their face looks puffy and they say, I'm bloated. What they're really meaning is I'm retaining fluid, but they use the same word, but it's not a digestive issue. Um, sometimes my patients, especially after menopause, who kind of start gaining weight differently and start um, kind of gaining most of their weight in their belly, such that the belly is bigger, even though their arms and legs are still kind of like slim and trim, um, they will call themselves bloated because they're really carrying all their weight in the midsection all of a sudden and their, be- and their waistline is much bigger. That's not bloating. Unfortunately, that's, you know, that's abdominal fat that is very unfortunately being deposited in your midsection. Um, and so we often see people using the term bloating to refer to things that are non-digestive in nature. Um, a lot of gynecological issues can also you know, result in a distended appearance and or feeling of bloated. Endometriosis is a huge one. When people have endo, they can be very bloated and very distended, but that's more gynecological than it is digestive. But these things can all be conflated with one another because they look the same and sometimes they feel the same. Okay. So when we're talking about true digestive bloat, can you talk a little bit about what are some things that may cause this? Like some of the really common causes of bloat. So probably the absolute most, most, most common thing I see is when people are literally full of, can I use bad, can I use words on this show or is this a family show? (laughs) Bad words here. When people are literally full of shit. Okay. (laughs) And so what can happen is some people are constipated and they know it, but some people are constipated and they don't know it. 
So sometimes people can go every day or maybe every other day and they kind of get a good poop and they kind of feel like I'm, you know, I'm pooping, I'm regular. But really what's happening is they're on an incredibly high fiber diet because they're trying to be healthy or low carb or keto or whatever we're trying to be. And you've got more fiber coming in than your body is actually passing. And all of a sudden stool starts building up and building up and building up such that when you wake up every morning, your colon is two thirds of the way full of stool. And then you start eating for the day. You eat your yummy salad and your nuts and your berries and your flaxseed. And all of a sudden your, your, abdom, your abdominal cavity is like, oh, hey, I've got no more room for all this bulk you're putting in because I'm full of poo. And then the belly starts distending. Sometimes you can even feel nauseous or lose your appetite or really full really quickly. Um, and so, so I think one of the most common things I see is people who are just really full of stool being very feeling bloated and also looking distended um, is a super common one. Um, another Wait, so can I stop you there? So yeah. would that person actually be advised to eat less fiber? Yeah, not just less fiber, but also different types of fiber. And so kind of fiber has physical properties that kind of make it take up more space or less space. And the example I love to give to my patients is take a bowl of kale. You know, if you take a bowl of raw kale and you put some dressing on it, and you eat it as a kale salad. Think about what it might look like physically after you finish chewing it, right? Kale's pretty tough and you're not sitting there chewing a hundred times per bite. And so you kind of get these larger particles of leaves. Our bodies can't break down fiber from plants. That's why it's fiber. And so however it goes down being chewed, that's kind of how it's going through your system. It's bulky, it's voluminous. It takes up a lot of space. Now picture that same bowl of kale that you put in your blender and turned it into a smoothie. Think about physically what the properties are of that kale now. The particle size of that fiber is nothing. It's minuscule and it takes up less space. And so when my patients are really full of stool, you know, I kind of attack it from both ends. I both think about how much fiber I'm putting in and what are the physical properties of the fiber that we're putting in, but also how much stool are we getting out and how do we really ramp that up? Um, and if we're really having a hard time ramping that up to maybe get that evaluated, a lot of patients who are full of stool have a pelvic floor muscle dysfunction and they can't poop completely mm -hmm. um, until their pelvic floor muscles can be retrained with physical therapy. Um, and so it's both about less in and also about more out and finding the balance so that we're not putting so much more in than our bodies are able to empty every day. And then, and that takes a couple of weeks to kind of really whittle down. Once you get that good balance, it'll still take a couple of weeks for your body to catch up. You know, if it's pooping out another 20% bonus per day, but you've got two weeks of backup there, it's going to take, you know, a couple of weeks until you can really start to see the difference. Okay. Very interesting. Okay. What are other causes of bloat? So, I mean, in my practice, I see a lot of patients with what we call functional GI disorders, right? And so these are things like irritable bowel syndrome, functional dyspepsia, where the structures of the GI tract look normal and healthy. The tissues are, you know, doctor does a colonoscopy, everything looks normal and there's no ulcers, there's no inflammation, but the sensory and motor functioning of the GI tract is not normal. And, uh, this, you know, uh, sort of, this is sort of the hallmark of what IBS is, right? The sensory behavior of your GI tract is hyper. It is hypersensitive. It's called visceral hypersensitivity. The nerves in your GI tract are over transmitting sensations of stimulus to the brain. So you and I might have the same exact amount of gas in our GI tract, but if you have IBS and I don't, your gut is telling your brain, Hey, I've got you know, this much volume of gas and your brain is sending a message down to your gut, which is like, 
oh my God, that is so uncomfortable. There is so much gas there. It's so distending. It's so uncomfortable. And you perceive that as being very bloating, very uncomfortable. Whereas I might have literally the same amount of gas and my brain isn't telling my gut to even register the sensation. And so this idea of visceral hypersensitivity to the presence of gas, to the presence of even a normal amount of stool, um, to the presence of spicy foods, to the presence of bulky, large volume salads or popcorn or things that take up a lot of physical space. Um, people with IBS, their brains are over-interpreting stimulus all throughout the GI tract. And often that manifests in this, this chronic feeling of bloating, of uncomfortable, overfulness, um, whether or not you're actually also distended. And is that mostly uh, genetically predetermined? IBS, not necessarily. So IBS is, seems pretty multifactorial. We know there's probably a huge component that has to do with the gut microbiome. And, you know, I'll hear a lot from patients who are like, I I've been like this since I was a kid and my mom has IBS, my sisters have IBS. But then you'll also hear stories from people who are like completely fine. They had a stomach of steel. They could eat everything. They went on like a vacation to like Mexico, got food poisoning, and they've never been the same since. And so we definitely know that there is something around the microbiome um, and how the, the organisms in our gut um, sort of modulate, you know, nerve transmissions to the brain and how they, um, how that signaling mechanism works. So, Interesting. Yeah. Now, let me ask you this, since the pandemic started, have you seen more people suffer with digestive problems? Um, like does stress make things worse? You know, I've seen a real mix. And so for some people actually working from home has helped make them more regular, which actually helps them make make them less bloated because they don't have to run out the door to get to a meeting. They're able to kind of have a nice, you know, for a lot of people, they need to kind of be relaxed to have a good poop. They need some time, yes. you know, and, and when you're working from home, sometimes just having access to the toilet and not, you know, a private bathroom, that's your home toilet. That's not like stalls. And like, for some people, the pandemic has been wonderful in terms of helping them get on a good pooping schedule. Um, they're cooking maybe more food than they used to. And so they are able to make foods that feel good in their body and sort of eat more home cooked meals that, you know, have been better tolerated. And so I think that there's a subset of my patients who are actually faring really, really well during the pandemic. But then of course, there's the opposite. There's some people now that are staying up super duper late because there's kind of no schedule anymore. And so I'm staying up really late and then I'm eating really late. And then I'm, you know, having bad dyspepsia, upper GI kind of, you know, indigestion or, you know, eating so late at night and then I wake up and my stomach's still half full of food because digestion slows overnight. And so like, then I kind of just feel heavy and bloated in the morning or, you know, I'm not, I'm eating just like kind of junky comfort food. And so the fiber has changed. And so I think the pandemic has changed changed a lot of behaviors. For some people, it's worked out really well. For some people, it's really kind of kicked up um, difficulties. And so it's a, it's a real mixed bag. Okay. Now let's talk a little bit about how would someone go about identifying what is causing. So you listed some possible causes of bloat. How would someone know what their specific issue is? What are some tools that they can use to identify that? Well, I will say that I've developed a quiz, a self-help quiz that is supposed to help people narrow down the top, you know, say two or three most likely causes. And actually you can get the quiz for free on my website, which is thebloatedbellywhisper.com. It's under resources, the quiz. 
Um, and it's just like a nine question quiz that kind of asks you a lot of questions that are designed to get at the geography of the bloat, right? And so, you know, people often say like, my stomach is bloated, but actually your stomach and your intestines are two <laughs> kind of separate organs. Um, and for some people, bloating is more upper GI in your stomach. And for some people, the bloating originates in the lower GI tract in your intestines. And literally just being able to make that distinction will already narrow down the causes of bloating to like, you know, from 10 or 20 to like five. Um, and so understanding the geography can be really helpful upper versus lower. And sometimes you can kind of get at that versus whether you're nauseous, whether you're burping or whether you're farting. Burping is upper GI, farting is lower GI, right? Um, whether you kind of feel like acidy, you know, nauseous, vomity type of stuff, or whether it's more kind of like underneath your belly button location and cramping and, you know, farty gas pain type stuff. Is your bloating alleviated somewhat when you poop, right? <laughs> if it is, you're probably dealing with more of like a constipation or an IBS scenario. Um, is your bloating at all related to food or is it completely unrelated to food, right? People who are bloated and say gassy and burping, no matter what they eat, they might be swallowing air and it has nothing to do with their diet, right? And so, you know, the quiz that I developed really helps people ask these sort of very pointed questions about when it, when it gets better, when it gets worse, what symptoms it's associated with. And that really can help you narrow down sort of some of the top possibilities. Okay, great. What about um, IBS that's associated with SIBO? Because I see a lot of information about that. So SIBO being small intestine bacterial overgrowth, is that something that you see commonly now that is kind of under the surface, or a lot of people may not be aware of SIBO as a yeah. trigger for IBS? Um, so I think IBS and SIBO are very much conflated. And so you can have SIBO and be told that you have IBS because they present very similarly. So some people have SIBO and they don't actually have IBS. It's actually just the bacterial overgrowth causing all their symptoms. And when we eradicate the bacteria, they're fine. They don't have the hypersensitivity. They don't have, you know, motility disturbances underlying. It really just was the SIBO. And then sometimes we have patients who have long-standing IBS who go on to develop SIBO, either because of the motility disturbances that IBS causes, right? So IBS, we said is sort of a sensory and a motor kind of dysfunction. Um, and so their, their bowel is kind of prone to these fits and starts, <laughs> you know, kind of like things will slow down for a little bit and then bacteria might have the stasis allows bacteria to kind of um, overproduce where they maybe don't belong. And then they're prone to these spasms where things just are running through them. And so they have very wonky motility patterns. And sometimes that can predispose to IBS. I think one thing that we see that, you know, I'm waiting for the literature to kind of really bear this out. We don't have a lot of research on it, but something that we've really long suspected in our practice is that I think a lot of people with IBS might inadvertently be giving themselves SIBO with probiotic use. Um, because what we know is that people with IBS are prone to these weird motility patterns. So now what happens if your motility is not normal and then all of a sudden you start feeding yourself pills full and full of billions and billions of bacteria that are supposed to not break down until they get to your colon. But what happens if that pill gets stuck in transit in their small intestine because your motility is slow? All of a sudden you're literally seeding these communities of bacteria, even quote unquote good bacteria, right? SIBO is not bad bacteria. SIBO is not an infection. It's not, you know, salmonella or E. coli. It's the normal commensal friendly bacteria that are supposed to just stay put in your colon, figuring out a way to uh, inhabit other parts of the GI tract where they really don't belong. Um, and so 
for this reason, for this among many other reasons, probiotics are really not something that I encourage, um, except for very specific circumstances where they have been demonstrated to be efficacious for very specific GI conditions. Um, but probiotics are really not a big part of my toolkit. I'm much more likely to take somebody off of a probiotic than I am to put them on a probiotic. And SIBO is really one of the big reasons why. Interesting. So we should take a step back and say that SIBO, again, is when good bacteria that we do want in our body are located in, in the place that we don't want them. They're, they're basically thriving in the wrong area. And that's, that's where they're causing issues like gas and the symptoms that we've talked about, right? Exactly. Your small intestine is really where all of your undigested adjusted nutrients are still in the process of being broken down by enzymes and absorbed into the body. And so what happens is if you have a lot of bacteria encountering all this not yet digested food, the bacteria are kind of beating your body to the buffet line, right? Like the bacteria have access to all of this, <laughs> this wealth of food and they, anything that they can ferment and eat, they will. Um, and that's why certain foods when people have SIBO are much more problematic than others because some foods are more fermentable than others. Okay. That makes sense. And I love what you said about probiotics, because we just hear so much about probiotics, especially because of the microbiome and gut health and everything that's going on, on social media and everywhere else with good research around gut health. And a lot of things that we didn't know that we now do know, but probiotics are not the answer to every <laughs> gut problem and every digestive issue that someone may experience. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, what I'll say is probiotics are one of those areas where there's just like this complete 180 between what we know about gut health and what the popular kind of messaging is on social media. And they couldn't be more different. The people who are promoting probiotics are mostly people who sell probiotics. <laughs> um, if you ask any microbiome researcher, and I have actually, I've interviewed, you know, the scientific director of the American Gut Project, which is this massive, you know, crowdsourced research project um, out of U uh, UCSF, where they're kind of trying to map what is like the normal human microbiome and learn about it. None of them take probiotics. <laughs> um, you know, the latest guidelines from um, the the AGA, the American Gastroenterological Association did this huge lit review, it just came out in May, I think, where they were like, you know, what are probiotics indicated for? And there were three conditions, one of them for preterm infants, <laughs> one of them for people who have had like a bowel surgery where they have like this thing called a pouch and the pouch keeps getting inflamed, pouchitis. That's a very specific, you know, niche thing. And then people who have had a condition called C. difficile, which is sort of like an opportunistic, um, pathogen um, in the gut. There's one specific probiotic that can be helpful to prevent C. difficile. Those are the three evidence-based indications from the AGA on when and who should use probiotics and which probiotics. Everything else, not evidence-based. Um, and so this idea that probiotics are this like $4 billion business that everyone is marketing them as this, as this like sort of cure-all is just completely, I think it's almost like the more we learn about the gut microbiome and how complex it is, the more we realize how useless <laughs> our probiotics really are. I mean, these are super complex ecosystems with you know trillions of bacteria. Yours is as unique to you as your fingerprints. And it's all the symbiosis. And so it's not just like this critter doing this, but it's this critter interacting with those 90 critters and how they all work together in this very tightly knit orchestrated way. And then this idea that some random strain that you take off your shelf, that's probably not even native to your gut that you probably don't even have in there 
And just taking this one pill with this one thing is somehow going to influence this massively complex community that is so tightly knit and integrated. It's almost laughable. Like probiotics really don't manipulate the human gut microbiome. And in 50% of the people, they don't even colonize. And so it's just, they're not really a, a, a silver bullet solution for most gut issues. And so they're just not really all that relevant for, for the work that I do. Very interesting. I'm so glad you're saying this because I think it's easy to look for that magic solution. It's easy to want to take a pill and solve your issue, but in reality, it's, it's so much more complex. There's so much that we don't know about the microbiome than we do know. So I think it's really important to understand that it's also a more holistic approach you know, than taking a pill or changing one food or eliminating this or that. So can you talk a little bit about your treatment approach and how would you go about, say you've identified someone's bloat is coming from a motility issue or, or, you know, what are some of the common things that you would say, especially in women? Um, I don't know if you can actually characterize that women of this certain age are more prone to this type of bloat, but can you give us a little bit about um, how do you do your magic with helping people? <laughs> Give us all your secrets. <laughs> the magic is really about personalizing and individualizing. And so this idea that like, you know, that everyone should be or needs to be or will be on the same diet is like ridiculous. And so again, you spend a lot of time on social media and people are trying to sell their diet, right? There's a lot of proselytizing um, and, you know, this sort of like one way of eating that like, and it's almost like religious, right? Like, you know, I'm keto and keto is the best way and carbs are evil, blah, blah, blah. And I'm vegan and plant-based and you have to be plant-based and this is toxic. And like, it's almost like, wow, like can't maybe 9 billion people on the planet have, you know, a couple hundred different versions of a healthy diet that feel good in their body. And maybe these diets are different. Um, not all of us have the same body. Not all of us have the same health issues. Not all of us can and should be eating the same exact way. Um, and so giving yourself permission to maybe not eat the way an influencer on Instagram is telling you, you should, because you know that when you eat that way, you feel horrible. Let's start there. Let's start with actually listening to our body and see what foods feel good. And I'll tell you that a lot of the time patients will actually like, they'll almost like start crying when I tell them like, you should really be drinking coffee every morning because they're really constipated and the coffee helps them poop. And they're like, oh my God, I've been trying so hard to give up coffee because because, right? Because why? Because they say you should give up coffee. Who's they? They don't even know who they is. You know, <laughs> you can drink coffee if it helps you poop and that makes you feel better. You should drink coffee. And if you're not drinking it, you should start drinking it. Right. And sometimes people will be like, oh, I feel so much better after like a bagel than after a salad. Yeah. Because when you're full of stool, sometimes a low fiber starch that's not adding to your stool burden is going to feel a lot better than like a pound of roughage. And Sometimes it's almost like my patients want my permission to be able to eat the foods that they know actually feel better in their body. And so a lot of what we do is just understanding sort of what foods feel good in your body and let's understand why that is, right? Um, and then let's build you the healthiest diet that you can comfortably tolerate within those parameters. And for someone who is on sort of maybe a less bulky, less roughagey diet, I call it my GI gentle diet, which is not a low fiber diet, but it's a more moderate fiber diet. And I'm really not doing a lot of raw stuff. You know, we're doing peanut butter, almond butter instead of nuts, instead of whole nuts. Maybe we'll take your berries in a smoothie instead of eat them raw with all the skins. You know, maybe we do more pureed vegetable soups instead of salads. So it's not about don't eat this, don't eat this, don't eat this. It's more around instead 
instead of this, which doesn't feel good, what's another healthy alternative that's going to feel better, that's less residuey, that's less bulky, that's not going to add so much to your stool burden. Mm -hmm. And so I'll do a diet like that for people with lower GI issues who are very constipated. I'll do it for people who have upper GI issues. Maybe their stomach is really slow to empty, or maybe they have something called functional dyspepsia, which is sort of like IBS of the upper stomach, where the upper stomach isn't super stretchy. And it's very sensitive to sort of large volumes and spicy things and um, just big, like larger meals. And so again, we'll kind of take the texture down. We'll do small frequent meals rather than three squares a day. You know, a lot of people are reading online that like, you're supposed to give your body like four hours between meals because otherwise you'll get SIBO. Like, no, you know, if you need to eat every three hours, something small, then like, who's the internet to tell you that you have to be fasted for six hours between meals? Like eat every three hours, it's going to feel better. And so sometimes just like allowing yourself to tune out the rules that they, <laughs> these like sort of like this anonymous they out there that are telling you and to really kind of tune in, do, do you feel better eating smaller amounts more frequently or you know maybe larger amounts less frequently? Do you feel better with cooked rather than raw? Do you feel better when you don't eat you know some of these plant-based foods that are very objectively healthy but are really gassy for you? Like what mm -hmm. feels best? Um, and Do you then, find food journals to be helpful here? Sometimes. Um, food journals for me are more helpful when I meet with a patient and I just cannot figure out what is going on with them. Right. And so I've been doing, I've been working for a GI doctor for 10 years. And so you know, I, at this point, I think my ear is pretty honed to a lot of the patterns such that I don't need you to give me a week long food journal. When I hear some patterns, like I can recognize them, but every so often someone will be confusing and I'll be like, you could literally be three or four different things in my head right now. Like you have aspects of what you're telling me that sound like this condition, aspects of what you're telling me that sound like that. And I'm not really sure what's going on. Do me a favor for two weeks, food and symptom journal, you know, morning to night, I want to get a sense for, and then that'll help me make sense of it. Um, I think for a patient, keeping a food and symptom journal on their own without a trained eye can be a double-edged sword because I think often my patients will draw inappropriate conclusions based on the data that they're recording. And they, you know, they'll be like, oh, I feel really bad after I eat X, but really, you know, say it was something you ate for lunch, right? And you start to feel bloated within 30 minutes of lunch. What's happening 50% of the time in that scenario is the, the act of eating lunch has just pushed breakfast forward in your colon. And now breakfast is arriving in the colon and whatever you ate for breakfast is bloating you. And so patients will look at a food journal like that, be like, oh, I'm bloated 30 minutes after lunch. I'm intolerant to something I ate at lunch. But then it's really confusing because then they eat that same thing for lunch three days later and they're not bloated and they can't figure out why. And it's because it wasn't lunch after all. It was what you ate, that bar you had for breakfast that had a super gassy fiber in it or a sugar alcohol or something. And so, you know, I think that food journals, if you don't know how to interpret them, can lead you potentially astray. But if, you know, a trained eye is helping you interpret a food journal it can be really helpful. That is so interesting because I hear a lot when people eat the same foods and some days they do cause symptoms, some other days they don't. So you're saying it's usually what happened before. You have to look at the whole pattern of the day, not necessarily the last thing you ate. It's often the thing you ate before. So, you know, it takes the, the transit time from something you eat to get to your colon, right? Your colon is where gas is at least supposed to happen unless you have SIBO, in which case the gas happens sooner. But assuming you don't have bacterial overgrowth in your small intestine, it takes about four to eight hours for a solid meal to make it to your colon. A little sooner, it could be as soon as two hours if it's like a liquid meal, like a smoothie and if you're fasted, but generally four hours is a good rule of thumb. Many people six, right? 
Um, and so if you're starting to fart and get really gassy, you know, right after lunch, it's usually because what you ate for breakfast was four or five hours before, right? Um, or, you know, sometimes the, the morning after, right? If it's something you had for dinner and then like you feel fine after dinner and the next morning you're like super bloated and gassy or whatever. Um, sometimes you might feel bloated and gassy or uncomfortable after a meal because you didn't poop that day. And so you're fuller of stool. And then, you know, on a day that you've eliminated really well that morning, you're fine. Your body's like, oh, I've got plenty of room for what you just fed me. But on a day where you skipped, your body's like, I, I don't have any room for what you just fed me. I'm a little bit fuller and I'm really uncomfortable. And so you have to take into account regularity. And so there's a lot that can go into it. It's not as sort of like this direct one-on-one, -on -one, I eat this food and I'm bloated. For some people it is, right? Like if you're lactose intolerant, then, you know, four to eight hours after eating a lot of lactose, you're going to be gassy no matter what, but you will be so in a dose dependent way. A little bit of lactose make you a little bit gassy. A lot of lactose will make you a lot gassy. Um, but for some people it's more complicated because we eat mixed meals. We don't just eat individual foods and we eat many meals over the course of a day. And it's can be really, really tricky to kind of parse out what's causing what. I like that in your book, you also said, sometimes you just have a food baby. Sometimes you just overate. And that is a pretty kind of like, you know, identifiable cause of bloat. It's just a large amount of food that is now kind of sitting there and making you a little uncomfortable. So yeah, it's not happened to me a lot, this pandemic. <laughs> I like saying to my kids, like, oh, I'll say, well, of course I use the proper terminology. I'm like, oh, mommy's a little dyspeptic. Like, I, <laughs> I ate too much. you know. And sometimes we do, like sometimes it's really yummy or sometimes we're bored or, you know, eating popcorn while we're watching a movie and we're just kind of mindless, you know, and, and sometimes we just overdo it. And that's not pathological. It's, it's being human. Sometimes we eat more than we need to eat. <laughs> Right. I, I want to go back to, you mentioned gluten and um, not gluten, you mentioned lactose, which I wanted to talk a little bit about um, dairy and also gluten or any other misconceptions around specific foods that you come across that are, you know, on social media, we hear everyone's using the term inflammatory, everything is inflammatory. And everything is, you know, <laughs> causing a problem. And um, specifically, I think soy, gluten, dairy, these are things that are oftentimes kind of pinpointed as problematic. Is there any science behind specific foods causing bloat more than others? Or are we going back to it really depends on the person? So let's start with most bloat is not inflammatory. Okay, let's just start there. Like digestive bloating, unless you have Crohn's disease or colitis is not inflammatory. So See, let's clarify what inflammatory is, because I think nobody knows. People who are listening are probably extremely confused about this because we basically hear about inflammation nonstop right now. And there is, you know, specific conditions that are considered inflammatory, right? Yeah. So, I mean, inflammatory conditions are when, you know, there's sort of like an infiltration of white blood cells um, that are secreting these... Um, these chemical signalers called cytokines, which are sort of mediators of inflammation. Um, and they're kind of secreting this because there is a problem, right? Like if you have an injury, right? And like you kind of cut your leg and it gets very, you know, red and swollen, right? It's because your blood vessels are getting very leaky to deliver more, you know, white blood cells to the scene to kind of create these, um, to create that inflammatory response so that things can get to the injury site to heal. 
Right. So the immune system is involved. Like we've now, yes, we've engaged the immune system. There's a problem in the body. Right. Now that's sort of acute inflammation. And so acute inflammation could be at the site of an injury, right? It could be if you're having an asthma attack or an allergic attack, right? Like sort of this acute situation. And then there's chronic inflammation where there's sort of like this, just like low grade infiltration of white blood cells, just like not, you know, not like a huge amount, nothing that would necessarily kind of like, you know, um, be super visible. Like if somebody like scoped you, but like a little bit more, just like a little bit of extra of these inflammatory cytokines circulating than maybe would be normal. Um, that can be more of like a chronic process. And so chronic inflammation, anything that ends with an itis, gastritis, esophagitis, colitis, right? Like anything itis. And over time, chronic inflammation is a risk factor for cellular changes, cancer, right? Chronic esophagitis can lead to esophageal cancer and chronic gastritis, stomach cancer and chronic colitis, colon cancer. And so like chronic, you know, immune system inflammation is not something that we want. It's not something that is good for us. But most of the digestive conditions associated with bloating are not inflammatory in nature. IBS is not inflammatory. SIBO is not inflammatory. Um, Slow motility, constipation, not inflammatory. Um, and so this idea that like, oh, I have, I'm chronically bloated and I feel worse when I eat dairy. You may very well feel worse when you eat dairy, but not because it's causing inflammation in your bowel. Unless of course you have a histamine intolerance, in which case there is some swelling and inflammation, but that's like a whole separate issue. Um, and so many people feel badly after they eat soy because soy is a bean. Beans are gassy, right? But is soy actively inflammatory? Actually, soy is anti-inflammatory. When you actually look at the compounds in soy, the isoflavones, those score very, very high or very, very low, I should say, um, on the inflammation index, meaning that they are anti-inflammatory. Now, there are many healthy anti-inflammatory foods that will make you feel like shit when you eat them, right? Like beans are incredibly anti-inflammatory. I love them. I recommend them for overall health. The people on the Mediterranean diet, the people in the blue zones who live till they're 100 without any cancer or heart disease or diabetes, they all eat a half a cup of beans a day. Depending on where they're in the world, they might be different kinds of beans. They're very anti-inflammatory, but a lot of my patients cannot eat beans comfortably. So there are foods that are anti-inflammatory that will feel lousy if you have a digestive problem. <laughs> um, and then there are foods that might be more pro-inflammatory, like you know, red meat. The saturated fat in red meat is associated as having a more pro-inflammatory effect, but you might digest that really, really well. It's very, you know, it's, there's no fiber, there's nothing gassy in it. Like a lot of people feel like, oh my God, I feel my best when I'm just eating meat, right? All those people on the carnivore diet, they're like, I feel great when I eat meat. Yeah, meat's fully digestible. Of course you feel great when you eat it, but you eat enough red meat, you're going to get colon cancer. So, you know, there's sort of, you, you can't. Yeah, I think that's like, where a lot of the confusion is because right. I hear Sometimes, people all the time say, well, what I'm supposed to eat for, for bloat or for IBS is not good for my cholesterol, specifically what you just mentioned. Right. Sometimes good foods feel bad. Sometimes bad foods feel good. And so the trick with any of this kind of goes back to what I said earlier is we have to figure out what your body feels best and then find the healthiest version of a diet that you can tolerate. Right. And so if someone feels better with more animal protein, then my job as your dietitian is to skew you more towards fish and anti-inflammatory omega-3 rich anti-inflammatory animal proteins than eating red meat five times a week because I don't want you to feel good digestively and then be at risk for all sorts of other cancers because you're eating too much red meat, right? 
Um, and so, you know, if you don't feel great eating a lot of, you know, salads and greens, can I get you, you know, more soups, uh, you know, pureed vegetable soups or green smoothies or whatever that will give you the nutrients and the healthy foods that are associated with having an anti-inflammatory effect in a way that feels good. If beans are horrible for you digestively, can you handle some firm tofu, which isn't particularly gassy and digestively it's much easier because if so, then that'll be your legumes. And so the job of a good dietitian is helping to navigate people to the healthiest diet that they can comfortably handle and that they enjoy, right? Like, you know, I also have a lot of patients that are like, you know, I know I should eat this, but I hate it. You know, and like, then let's find you something that will deliver similar nutritional value that you like, because nobody should have to eat food that they hate. YOLO. <laughs> you know, it's true. Yes. Um, all right. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about hormones and digestive health. Okay. So um, we talked a little bit about stress before and kind of how the pandemic has shifted maybe people toward actually a more comfortable digestive situation. Um, what do you see in terms of younger women around their period or, um, even with things like hypothyroidism, a lot of my listeners do, um, struggle with both PCOS and hypothyroidism, um, which could be really tricky. Um, and there are digestive, you know, implications to that. Can you speak to that a little bit? I mean, the thyroid thing, I think is somewhat more straightforward, which is, you know, people with hypothyroid are going to be prone to slower motility throughout, you know, slower stomach, slower bowels, and sometimes, you know, a slower stomach will kind of give you more acid reflux, right? When things are sitting around for a long time, you might be dyspeptic and have upper GI issues. You might get much more constipated and have a really hard time going to the bathroom and then get kind of bloated and uncomfortable and gassy from that. And so, you know, certainly thyroid function is something always on my radar screen for people with chronic constipation, um, something that we routinely are screening for. Um, and, you know, we can manage it both through, you know, putting people on what I call a bowel regimen, which is just like a little bit of a supportive supplementation regimen to keep them going. Um, but also making sure that they're, they're being tracked with endocrine um, and making sure that their thyroid levels are optimized. Um, and when that happens, when the thyroid goes back into balance, do the digestive issues usually improve? Often, yes. Often, yes. Oh, that's good to know. And we should say the thyroid and constipation connection is because thyroid, um, activity will impact your metabolism one way or another. So well, your motility, right? So your metabolism and your motility are your thyroid affects both, but they are different things. Yes. Yeah, so everything kind of slows down when someone's thyroid is underactive, whether right. it's the way you digest food, the way food moves through, how many calories you're burning, everything slows down, which is associated with all the different things we see with hypothyroidism. But here specifically, we're talking about mostly constipation as a kind of a side effect of that. Yep. Um, I had another question about thyroid, um, but I forgot. So go on. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, the other question is sort of like the cycle, like the influence of your menstrual cycle. And yes, I mean, certainly people have different bowel patterns during their cycle. So a lot of my patients will be very actually prone to crampiness and diarrhea around their periods. And a lot of my patients will be prone to kind of constipation around their periods. And so there are definitely really, it's really common to have changes in your bowel patterns associated with your menstrual cycle. And yeah, I think I, I probably don't know enough about it as much as I should. I'm not an endocrinologist or I don't practice in an endocrine place, but you know, one thing I do know, um, 
is that, you know, the hormones affect smooth muscle, right? Like the reason we get kind of cramps, like menstrual cramps is because these sort of like smooth muscle kind of spasms, right? That the uterus is contracting, which is causing us to bleed. Well, guess what? Your bowel is also smooth muscle, right? Your colon is also smooth muscle um, and hormones that affect smooth muscle in one part of, you know, the abdominal cavity can also affect the smooth muscle in other parts. Um, and so a lot of people kind of get crampy, spasmy diarrhea around the time of their period, because literally it's the same process. Um, and so certainly there are changes that can be associated um, in that sort of mechanistically through that way. Um, if you have endometriosis, you know, not everyone who has it knows it. In fact, it's very, very underdiagnosed because it's very, very hard to diagnose. Um, and so if you have sort of endometrial tissue or uterine lining tissue outside the uterus, like in other parts of the abdomen, sitting on your intestines or other parts of the abdomen, it might become more swollen you know, at different times of your menstrual cycle, and you will literally be fuller of tissue, of more swollen tissue at different parts of your cycle and feel very bloated or, you know, have sort of these uh, more constipation related issues, right? If you've got like some heavy tissue just sitting on your bowel, it can slow things down a little bit. It can impede your motility. And so endometriosis can also be a connection between sort of um, reproductive gynecological issues mm -hmm. and bowel symptoms. Okay. And let me ask you this about, you mentioned about regimen with some support it, while someone is dialing in their diet and working on fine, fine tuning what works for them. Is it okay for someone to take certain, um, medications or supplements or what kind of bowel regimen do you, would you say has been helpful for people with constipation while they're working on their diet, which can take a little bit of time because there's a lot of trial and error that goes into that, right? Yeah. I mean, look, I would also add to that, that it's okay to be in a bowel regimen, even while you're not working on your diet. So some people will even find the perfect diet for them and they'll still need the support of a bowel regimen. And there's this idea that like, you know, I should be able like to regulate myself with food only. And that somehow like you're you don't want to be dependent. I hear this all the time. Well, I take it and it really helps and makes me feel amazing, but I won't want to be dependent on it. I'm like, guess what? If your bowel is super slow, you're dependent on something to speed up your bowel because you cannot change your motility. There's no food you can eat that's going to make your bowel faster. So either you take something gentle, safe, literally helpful for the rest of your life and feel good, or you can martyr yourself because you don't want to quote unquote be dependent on something and suffer. Um, magnesium. You need it anyway. It's good for your heart. It's good for your bones. It helps prevent migraines. And by the way, when you take it at 400 milligrams or more, it helps you poop. Why wouldn't we all be taking magnesium if we were constipated? Like there's literally, as long as your kidneys work, there's no downside to it. It doesn't change your underlying bowel function. Meaning that like, there's this idea of dependency that if I take it all the time, my bowel is all of a sudden gonna forget how to work. Um, if you stop taking magnesium, you will be left with that same lousy baseline bowel function that you had before. No worse, no better, same. Um, magnesium and Miralax is sort of like a, a similar over-the-counter drug version is an osmotic laxative, okay? Osmotic laxatives, they just work by drawing water into the bowel. They don't cause contractions. They don't change your motility. They literally just draw water into the bowel, which puts a little bit of forward pressure on the bowel contents to kind of keep moving along. Um, and so it is not quote unquote dependency forming. Um, you use it 
at the same dose. You don't need to keep increasing the dose over the years. Once you find the dose that works, it will continue to work at that dose indefinitely. Um, and so I think that, you know, a lot of our patients do themselves a disservice by having this idea in their head that like it's cheating to use a bowel regimen or it's, you know, harmful in the long run, or they should be able to change their underlying bowel function with sleep and exercise and diet. And that's just not true use it. If it's there and it's helpful, you should use it. You deserve to feel good. Exactly. Yeah, I totally agree. I don't find that it's a bad thing to be relying on a medication or a supplement or, you know, with the world of PCOS, there's a lot of um, different symptoms and different conditions that coincide with, with PCOS. And you can't possibly manage everything on your own through the diet. Um, even though that would be nice, there's no shame in using help or using a supplement. Again, you want to feel good. You want to function in your daily life the best way you can. So nobody has to know if you're embarrassed about use of supplements or medications, it really is something that's personal and, you know, should support your goals or feeling your best. So I totally agree with that. Um, I want to wrap up and I want to ask you, for kind of some final thoughts, or if someone is dealing with bloat and they want to get started with identifying their cause, where should they go? Well, first of all, where should you not go? Do not go to Instagram. <laughs> Literally every bloating infographic I've seen on Instagram is appallingly wrong. So by definition, if you've seen it on Instagram, literally do the exact opposite of whatever it says. Unless it's a registered dietitian who specializes and knows what she's doing, but I see that you're not. <laughs> I gotta tell you, Daphna. I mean, I am a registered dietitian. I love my profession. I love my credential. But there are registered dietitians out there who are also peddling bunk, mm. and so That's a lot of people are making money selling a lot of supplements. Okay, so just, you know, be mindful of getting medical advice on Instagram, be mindful of a one size fits all um, solution, because, you know, there are, you know, in my book, I talk about 10 different causes of bloating. They're like the 10 most common causes, but beyond the 10 that I write about my book, there's another couple of dozen that are not written about in my book. And so who's to say that the bloated person swearing by a solution on Instagram has the same cause of bloating as you do. And therefore the same diet is going to work for you. Um, and so just be really mindful of one size fits all solutions and your trainer telling you this and your sister telling you that, and like, you are your own person. Um, you know, like I said, you know, you can definitely start with my quiz. Uh, it's free. It will help you narrow down um, some of the more common uh, reasons um, for bloating. And for a lot of people, not for everyone, but for a lot of people, it's remarkable how a very simple diet change or use of a, a well-chosen specific supplement, you know, for example, like magnesium in the case of, you know, constipation or changing the texture of your diet or the, you know, certain food additives or whatever it is can make a profound impact. And the nice thing about digestive system responses is it takes very, very quick to sort of see results. It can be a week, it can be two weeks. Um, these are things that you can experiment with, with different types of eating patterns. Um, and you will see very, very quickly if they're helping you. These aren't things that have to take six weeks, you know, six months, like within a week or two, you'll start to notice a difference if you're, if you're barking up the right tree. Um, I would also always caution my patients, be very, very mindful of, you know, a lot of these quote unquote food sensitivity tests, you know, that are being marketed to us online and through alternative medicine practitioners. These are not science-based food sensitivity tests are not, um, really 
validated to diagnose any conditions. They don't actually diagnose food sensitivity. And for most people, sort of like a, an allergic-ish or pseudo-allergic food sensitivity is not the cause of their digestive system bloating. And so I think that you're really just wasting money and barking up the wrong tree. Um, they can be really, really confusing. You'll get a list of like two dozen, three dozen foods that you're allegedly sensitive to. And like, how are you supposed to like figure out which one, <laughs> right? Um, and so I just, I find them really confusing and besides the point. So just be careful about those things. All right, great. And we should say your book has recipes and it has a lot of great practical information based on the different causes. So you 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 list the cause, you list the, the treatment protocol more or less than someone would go to. So it's I, I love the book because it's so practical and it's so informative. So I highly recommend my uh, listeners go check out the quiz and then um, take a look at the book. And is there an audio version? There is an audio version. Um, you know, look, I, I'm happy for you to buy the audio version. I have to say that for a book like this, the print I think can be a little bit more helpful because there are a lot of tables and charts yes. and um, and you know the quiz and recipes. And this is the kind of book that you're going to find a couple of chapters that are really relevant for you specifically. There's a whole chapter on fiber that has a lot of really detailed information. I think it's harder to kind of use the way it was intended without having something in writing. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, I know a lot of people who do both, like for a lot of books, they will listen and then they want to take notes, put even post-its in the book and kind of use it as a real reference guide to go back to. So this is definitely the book to do that with. Yeah, definitely. And I narrate the, the audiobook, So you get to listen to me giving oh, you no counseling advice as if I was talking to you. <laughs> um, so, and let me tell you, when I narrated that audiobook, when you talk for like hours and hours, you swallow a lot of air. And I got aerophagia, which is one chapter in the book, just from, <laughs> from, from narrating my audiobook, which was like a new experience for me. I'd never had that before. Oh my goodness. All right. Well, Tamara, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And I will link to everything in the show notes, your website and the quiz so everyone can find it easily. Thank you. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Yes. Take care, Daphna. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the interview and I've found a lot of great insights, strategies, and information in what we discussed today. For more information, please visit the show notes below so you can get all the details, links, and recommendations that were discussed today. And if you like this podcast and what you've heard today, leave a review and subscribe to the show so you never miss when new episodes are out and you also help more people find this information. I'll be here again next week with a new episode. Until then, be well. Bye for now.